ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day, Glads and Pods, coming to you from Gadigal Country. My new uh, turbocharged pacemaker seems to be working perfectly, but sadly, my headphones are not, but we press on. Shortly, we'll be looking at uh, Trump's leaning tower of troubles and uh, why he shouldn't have kept all those secret documents just outside the dunny door. Then we're going to hear the story of Ebola, as told by people, by animals and by trees. And then I'm going to introduce you to an ex-diplomat who is in the Guinness Book of Records for having spotted more birds than anyone on Earth. But first, it's time to talk to a bloke who's a contributing editor at The Nation magazine and executive director of the Dart Centre for Journalism and Trauma, at Columbia University, a.k.a. Bruce Shapiro. Tell us about Donald's troubles. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Where to start? Is it the boxes of documents, classified documents and presidential records in the shower at Mar-a-Lago? Is it uh, the former president talking obsessively about my boxes, my boxes, my boxes, which seems to be the closest we'll get to understanding his motivation here. Uh, look, th- the reality is that last over the last couple of weeks, we've crossed an important Rubicon. Never before in American history has a former president been indicted by a federal grand jury, faced a federal trial, and possibly faced prison. Um, and what's interesting in this case is that While we focus a lot of time on President Trump's behavior while in office and the other investigations um, of the president focus on that, the the conflicts of interest, the ginning up of January 6th, the fake electors theory, um, this indictment is, as President Trump's own former attorney general said, entirely of his making in the time since he was president. Um, You know, there's a lot of dramatic focus on classified documents, but what at the bottom of this is that presidential records under something called the Presidential Records Act, passed after the Nixon administration, are considered public property. And the, the road that led to this indictment started after the National Records and Archives, National Archives and Records Administration asked quite politely to get the papers back, all of them. Um, And then it snowballed from there as former President Trump repeatedly, and as the indictment has it, in in his own words, refused to give stuff back, hid stuff, misled investigators, asked his own lawyers to mislead uh, investigators. It looks to me like the indictment is coming in large part from the, the notes of the president's own lawyers. So, you know, A, he is in a heap of trouble on this. It is, a, it is really a quite strong case. Of course, it's coming while he's an active presidential candidate, which adds another bizarre layer to this. But, you know, it, it's important to understand that What's at stake here is not just uh, should documents be classified or not, and well, really, you know, who who there's no evidence that classified documents were passed to the Russians or something, though who knows what will come out, but that's how it looks now. But rather, the basic principle that presidential records, just like the presidency itself, belong to the public. And what Donald has done here, as he does with everything, is essentially violate the law in order to monetize and be personally comforted by his ownership of cool stuff. 
it is actually a fairly shocking indictment in the in the particulars, which is why uh, Jack Smith, the federal prosecutor, uh, special counsel, asked all Americans and you know, I would say all Australians too to actually read the charging document, uh, the forty pages of it. It's really a remarkable document, and we are headed into completely unknown territory. As you know, I've been a lifelong supporter of the Donald and I think it, this is all <laughs> a part, all a part of a witch hunt. And in parenthesis, I'm looking forward to welcoming uh, Donald Trump Jr. to Australia, I think next week. I hope you'll come onto the program. But uh, could he still run for the White House? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, no, there's, there's absolutely nothing to stop him. In fact, in 1920, then uh, American socialist leader, the great American socialist leader, uh, Eugene Victor Debs, ran for president from federal prison, uh, where he'd been sent for speaking out against World War One in the first great uh, era, of the first great Red Scare in the United States. And, um, and as, I, as I recall from a previous conversation, got about a million votes. He did. He got a million votes from prison. And, you know, he, he joked that he would be the first person to run for president without ever having to leave his house. OK, <laughs> um, which actually puts Debs in interesting company with Biden, who you'll recall campaigned uh, during COVID by barely leaving his basement, which did probably help him get elected, given his penchant for saying odd things um, on the stump. So, you know, there's 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 nothing to stop Donald from running. Um, were he elected president after conviction or, well, or while still being tried, then you're into a whole other, other set of issues. Um, you know, my guess is, however, that the lawyers and the court process itself will delay the trial uh, until after the election, and he's going to keep running. Of course, remember that the Donald is also facing a possible indictment from the same special counsel in this very separate January 6th investigation, which seems to be accelerating. Uh, and he also faces possible indictment in Georgia in the fake electors scheme by the um, by the local prosecutor in Atlanta. And he is already facing uh, under, under indictment in New York uh, for corruption schemes involving his company. So um, whatever happens, he's running for office facing a lot of charges, facing a lot of trials. Vale Daniel Ellsberg. Well, the great Daniel Ellsberg, who's death ironically came the very week of, of Trump's indictment. Ellsberg, of course, was famous for leaking the Pentagon papers and as recently as this year was still releasing secret documents from the 1950s that he had about American nuclear policy. Ellsberg was the polar opposite as a leaker uh, from Donald Trump. This was a a public servant, someone who'd been a national security advisor, uh, an advisor on the ground in Vietnam, who came to believe that the war was wrong, was a gigantic war crime, and that the American people had a right to own that information. And released way back in 1970, that secret Pentagon study that had gone on for years exploring how and why we'd ended up in Vietnam. He faced prosecution under the Espionage Act, the very same law that uh, Trump is accused of violating. That prosecution, however, was dropped when it was revealed that the Nixon administration had been spying on Ellsberg, broken into his psychiatrist's office, conduct, as the trial judge said, so egregious that it made it necessary to to drop the charges. But it, you know, here you have leaking in defense of the public right to know versus a president taking documents away from the public for his own profit and good. Um, Ellsberg is the 
you know, is 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 the guiding conscience of whistleblowers in government all over the world, and he is already I, missed. I spoke to Dan a couple of times, most recently just last year on LNL when he was uh, supporting my friend Julian Assange. And dear listener, we will be replaying some of that interview for you on Thursday's LNL. Now, let's go to the Supreme Court. I can't believe that we're about to say something half good about it. <laughs> well, the Supreme Court delivered a surprise last week. Uh, one of the, you know, it's the end of the term when all the big cases drop, and the big shoe we were expecting it to drop this time was from a case in Alabama involving the Voting Rights Act, where Alabama districts were drawn in a way that would make it impossible for a, a black majority to ever exist in any congressional district. Um, and we we're expecting the Supreme Court to gut that section of the Voting Rights Act allowing for enforcement of those rules. Um, by a narrow margin, a majority of the Supreme Court, with Chief Justice John Roberts and conservative Justice Brett Kavanaugh joining the court's three liberals, the Supreme Court, in fact, uh, upheld the Voting Rights Act, refused to overturn it this time, and did, in fact, rule that Alabama violated the Voting Rights Act, violated the Constitution, and had to send its uh, voting district lines back to the drawing board in order to avoid this perception that that no black representative could ever be elected because the population was so diluted. This was a huge, huge shock. It came as a thunderbolt. And I think there are a couple of things going on. But One Bruce, is that after Bruce, it is said that this ruling doesn't really improve voter rights. It just stops things getting worse. It stops things getting worse, but that's a big deal. When our presumption was, especially coming after a, a another Alabama case uh, a decade ago, Shelby County, we expected that the Supreme Court majority on Chief Justice, under Chief Justice Roberts would complete its work of undoing enforcement of the Voting Rights Act. I think what's going on here is twofold. First of all, after last year's term-ending abortion ruling, the Dobbs case, which caused such uh, public outrage, including in a lot of red states, the court, especially Chief Justice Roberts, who is mindful of the court's credibility, has perhaps become a little more reluctant, a little more careful about another case going into a highly charged political time that would further corrode a public perception of the court. But there also there also are hints, let me just say, in the decision that Roberts and Kavanaugh simply said, uh, you know what, this isn't quite the right case. There are a couple of technicalities here that we don't want to rule on. Bring us another one just like this, and we'll find the grounds to overturn the Voting Rights Act like everybody expects. So it's not saving the Voting Rights Act in the long run, but it is certainly having a dramatic effect on black voters in Alabama, and it's buying time. In 60 seconds or less... An interesting uh, report on the Minneapolis police. Absolutely searing. Three years after the murder of George Floyd, the Justice Department released its findings and found you know, a regime of brutality uh, in Minneapolis, a city that, um, you know, that, that is thought of as a liberal bastion. But the report is proof that so much of the civil rights violations that we focus on sometimes at the Supreme Court and the national level, in fact, pervade this country at the local level. There were chokeholds, repeated um, police uh, shootings that involved civil rights violations, um, harassment directed at journalists and protesters. It's an absolutely scathing indictment of a municipal police department and a reminder of just how deeply ingrained in local governance, not just the White House, the country's long history of both racism and authoritarian police behavior really is. Going forward, there will be a consent decree, Minneapolis pledges to do better, etc. Uh, but it was a, a 
very important document reminding us of all the work there is to done to be done locally while we're still distracted by the White House. So it's goodbye to uh, Bruce Shapiro and after a little bit of music, hello to Veronique Tajo. I'm going to start the next story by reading a quote from a quite extraordinary book. And I want you to realise that the words I'm about to read are the words of a tree. When my hour comes, I will stretch out on the ground, offering my trunk to the gnawing insects and the lichen that feed on my flesh. I'm ready. Death does not frighten me, it bounds up with life. But when men murder us, they murder, they must know that they are breaking the chain of existence. Animals can no longer find food. Bats can no longer find food, can no longer find the wild fruit they like so much. Then they migrate to the villages where there are mango, guavas, papaya and avocado trees with their soft, sweet guava, papaya and avocado trees with their soft, sweet fruits. The bats seek the company of men. My next guest has written this wonderful book. It's called, uh, well... It's called In the Company of Men and it tells the tale of Ebola in West Africa through many voices, that of uh, the ancient Baboa trees, which uh, you just heard, uh, the, the grandmother who, uh, who takes in orphan boys, the doctor perspiring in a plastic spacesuit, scared yet uh, determined to help his, his country and the infected bats and the virus itself have their say. The book's author, as I said before the uh, break, is Veronique Tajo. And uh, she's a poet, a novelist, an academic, an artist from Cote d'Azur, and she joins me now from London. I have to say... uh, that you've written a remarkable book and I welcome you to our program. You start the book briefly with the tale of young boys hunting and eating bats but move quickly to telling the tale from the perspective of the uh, Baobab tree. Tell us why you chose the tree. What does it, what does it see that we humans cannot? Oh. Thank you very much uh, for having me here, Philip Adams, and uh, thank you for your reading. Um, the tree, yes, the tree, uh, the baobab tree is um, is quite a magnificent tree, and uh, I thought of uh, making him the storyteller, and uh, that's why it's the tree who's speaking, and the tree is a symbol of memory, the symbol of um, uh, century-old memory, and that's because nature has been with us forever, and uh, we live in nature. And I had this feeling that uh, if someone had uh, an idea of uh, what uh, men do, the way they live, uh, it's the trees that are around us. And of course, you were interested in highlighting the interdependence between humans and non-humans. Absolutely, because when I started uh, writing this book, I did a lot of research, and it came uh, strongly that uh, the Ebola epidemic was grounded in an environmental crisis, in the sense that uh, there's a big uh, uh, deforestation drive in those countries, that is uh, Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone. And uh, this uh, creates uh, havoc. 
Um, it's the same also with mining. Mining is, is terrible for the environment. And when the habitat of animals is destroyed, they tend to come closer to human beings. Hence the title of the book, In the Company of Men. In fact, it's from the point of view of animals in the sense that they can't find food anymore. So they come to the villages, for example, where they can find um, uh, fruits, all sorts of fruits, the fruits you have named uh, uh, earlier. Veronique, you write of a time when... Uh when men used to talk to trees, when in effect the trees talk to us? Well, it's, uh, of course, <laughs> we don't hear anything, but uh, people who believe in, uh, in, in, in the um, force of nature uh, tend to hear all sorts of things. Uh, what I want to say is that uh, we used to be closer to nature, but then men, human beings, decided that they were the conquerors of uh, the whole world, basically, and that they could do whatever they wanted. And this is, in a sense, what is happening to us today. We have to look at people uh, who, indigenous people, for example, who still have that uh, closeness to nature. And we have to uh, be humble and go to them and say, and try and learn something that we have lost. You remind us that uh, much of the environmental destruction was due to the discovery of gold. Exactly. Mining is very destructive because in order to get to uh, the um, uh, precious uh, metals, you have to use all sorts of um, chemicals that... uh, uh, poison rivers and uh, the thing is that uh, it's illegal mining. You see, illegal mining comes uh, with, uh, let's say, official mining because people try to make money from something that looks like it's very, very profitable. So they start digging uh, holes everywhere, uh, Putting chemicals in the in the rivers because they they want some money, uh, and this uh, illegal mining is extremely destructive because it's it's not controlled by anybody. Over many years, I've been doing this program. I don't think I've ever discussed a book which interweaves so many perspectives, and uh, well, we've talked about some at the start. But I'd also like to ask you whether African storytelling traditions influenced your book. Oh, enormously. I've been raised in Côte d'Ivoire and uh, storytelling is is still a very strong influence and some of our best writers have inspired their work, have been inspired by storytelling. I think the beauty of storytelling is... uh, that uh, it gives you an enormous uh, freedom. I'm I'm talking about oral tradition here. And uh, you you can invoke uh, animals, you can invoke nature, you can invoke poetry, you can invoke history, you can invoke even um, political language. And it's also very flexible because it depends on your audience. There is an interaction with your audience. So you 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 are you have a certain uh, uh, freedom to adapt your story to to your audience and i find that extraordinary uh, for uh, a writer one of the perspectives that you um, employ is that of the doctor in his uh, plastic spacesuit uh, so how c- and he can only wear it because of its heat for uh, what uh, forty minutes at a time. Ebola pushed uh, health services to their limit in a way we couldn't imagine before. Yes, uh, I-, I was really interested in uh, the suffering that goes uh, with being courageous, in the sense that that uh, a doctor is in a suit. And and it's very, very hot and humid in, in, in West Africa. And the, the, the heat must have been unbearable. But uh, there is this immense uh, 
uh, courage and determination to 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 fight the 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 disease. But I want to say that uh, uh, why uh, Ebola was so terrible in 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 West Africa is because two of the countries, Sierra Leone and Liberia, had been through terrible wars, and they were just coming out of these wars. So the uh, fragility of the health system was uh, immense, and uh, nobody was prepared for 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 what happened. And if you take if you take Guinea for example, which wasn't at war, it was um, under um, a big dictatorship, and it was even more difficult in Guinea to uh, contain the disease because there was such a distrust in the government. The very pavement was strewn with anonymous ravaged corpses, the bodies of men and women who simply collapsed as though violently struck down. Veronique, would you read the quote from the observation of the doctor? Um, Yes, yes. Uh, The doctor says at some point, um, some lives seem as worthless and irrelevant as the bruised fruit left over at the end of a market day, left to rot in wooden crates or just thrown away. It's fruit nobody wanted, and yet only a few hours before, it was adorning the stores. I am a trespasser in the kingdom of death. I feel like just sitting in silence while the listeners feel the resonance of those words. Women and children were the the hardest to hit. There were Ebola core orphans just wandering the streets. Yes, and it's it's interesting to to make the comparison with war because this is what happens in war as well. Uh, Children are are strongly affected by by war and they're strongly affected by uh, epidemics and and, and pandemics because they can lose their parents, of course, uh, to the disease uh, or to violence when it's war. And you have these orphans, and in the, in the case of Ebola orphans, they they when they, and in the heat of the epidemic, nobody was taking care of them, so they were street children. They became street children, and that was a, really a, a, a terrible thing. You are a wonderful writer. Let me quote this uh, sentence: "Orphan children." like celestial bodies whose orbits lie far from the sun. Veronique, would uh, you keep reading for me? Yes. um, They've lost their innocence. They've lost the kingdom of their childhood. They've learned that their parents aren't immortal, that life can turn upside down from one day to the other. They're just kids but they're already old. I vividly recall that the West was very slow to respond to the crisis, wasn't it? Yes, effectively, because in fact, you know, uh, Ebola was discovered uh, in 1976 and there's been uh, many um, epidemics, uh, but they were uh, of um, lesser extent, so people didn't really care about it, you know, it was happening somewhere in Africa and, and it wasn't affecting anybody. But the um, 2014 uh, Ebola epidemic lasted two years. And uh, at the beginning, people thought it's okay, it's the same thing as usual, but then it, it took on another dimension. And it started even to threaten the West in the sense that today mobility is uh, really. Uh, I I remember reporting on the program when that uh, infected Mm -hmm. uh, volunteer nurse travelled home Mm -hmm. to the US and uh, that showed the West how vulnerable it was. Exactly. There was even an incident on a plane where someone had been infected with uh, with Ebola and nobody realized it. And then they then they, the the whole plane had to be quarantined and and they had to look at uh, 
at, at who was infected or not, and, and the plane was uh, uh, going to, to Europe. So I think the, the West realized that something had to be done quickly. And funny, cunningly, I could say that they, they went overdrive. That means in the sense that uh, they thought that money could just uh, solve the problem. Veronique, I uh, recall that despite these enormous risks, volunteers from around the world pitched in, risking their lives to help others. Yes, and that's the, 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 I think that my motivation in writing the book was to pay homage to all these people who came at the risk of their life to uh, help contain the disease. And I think that's extraordinary. And, of course, uh, battling the virus meant battling superstition, suspicion and uh, religious, well, battling religion and just plain denialism. Yes, it's always like that. I think in time of uh, uh, big crises, you, you have uh, uh, people who, who think they can get, uh, they can save themselves by... Uh, using superstition uh, by using uh, by being uh, uh, by turning to religion by human beings are the same all over the world they when they're faced with uh, uh, threats to their lives they they, they go to uh, extremes I recall, uh, well, you write about it, it came to a point where people were so suspicious of having needles stuck in their arms because they thought it was a, a plot to infect them. Yes, and they, they would ask the nurses, uh, what are you injecting me with? Because the, unfortunately, uh, there was no vaccine, there was no real treatment, so it was a bit like... Um, you know, a death sentence. So they, they were very suspicious of, 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 of whatever was doing to them. But in fact, what the nurses and doctors were trying to do was to just uh, help uh, uh, the patients to uh, uh, strengthen their immunity system. And you remind us that uh, it involved battling government corruption on a massive scale. Yes, because suddenly you had, as I said, when the West realized that they had to do something, uh, the, the the money was like pouring in. And what's terrible is that it was announced and, and constantly, we constantly heard um, millions or billions, uh, millions of, uh, of, of, of dollars or, or pounds uh, being sent to the country. So for ordinary people, uh, there was this impression that suddenly the country was uh, awash with money, which wasn't not, which wasn't the case, and um, but it created all sorts of um, uh, greediness. Uh, but luckily, uh, that was uh, not uh, the the main uh, the main thing that happened. I think I think uh, for most people, that money was much welcome because it was needed. Veronique, in the end, winning over Ebola was a combination, uh, you mentioned earlier, of international solidarity, but also of engagement with traditional healers. Yes, because I think that uh, at the beginning, scientists thought that they could do it alone that they, they had the answer to the problem. And they soon realized that human beings were, were the, the key to the success of uh, uh, the end of uh, Ebola. So they started to understand that, uh, for example, traditional burial rites had to be in a certain way uh, respected. That means they had to find a compromise so that people could uh, uh, bury their dead, and uh, but in a safe way. Otherwise, they would uh, hide the bodies and and, and do it themselves. So they, it's it's interesting. There was there was a need of a cooperation at a human level. It will astonish the listeners to learn that uh, one of the voices is uh, of the bat and of the virus itself. What do they say about all this? Yes, I can. I can read a quote um, 
of the, 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 the virus talking to the baobab tree. Uh, it distresses me to see how intent the human race is on its own destruction. Very soon, there would be nothing left for me to do. Human beings should be given a little, as little power as possible. No kings, no princes, no heads of state, no politicians, just mere individuals facing their destiny. Because all forms of government which are supposed to establish order actually create chaos. They're veritable mafias run by the rich who monopolize assets and resources. I made, I made the virus, Ebola virus, um, an anarchist. I have to thank you for coming on and for the wonderful book you've written. My guest has been Veronique Tadjo, a poet, novelist, academic, artist and author of In the Company of Men, published by Other Press in New York. And coming up, one man's quest to see 10,000 bird species. Quite recently up at the farm, I was awoken early one morning by a kookaburra laughing. And of course, uh, that reminds me that the kookaburra is one of the comparatively few birds that all of us, at least here in Australia, instantly recognise. We, uh, well, our next guest is, uh, is a guy called Peter Kessner. And he has taken bird watching and expertise to the next level. In 1986, he was the first birder to see a representative of every family in the world and was recognised in the Guinness Book of World Records for this achievement. On the 12th, no, on the 11th of May 2023, he became the world record holder for having seen the most amount of bird species, a staggering 9,856 species, and he uh, aims to see 10,000. A former diplomat with the US State Department, he's spent his life looking for birds around the world and he has many other feathers to, um, to add to his cap and I welcome him to our little wireless program. He joins us uh, from the US. I have to ask you this, what figure are you up to now? <laughs> good question. Good morning or, or good evening, wherever you are. Uh, it's very nice to be on the show. Uh, my number today is 9876. So victory is within your grasp. It is. It is. I just misspoke. It's, it's 6-7, not 7-6. I got oh. the, the digits right, but I, I have a problem with uh, dyslexia, so sometimes I reverse numbers. Where do you need to go? Will they be easy to find, the, uh, the final? That's cluster? a good question. Uh, for the most part, if you go to new places, it's relatively easy. Uh, if you go to old places, it's very hard. I just came back from a two-week trip to Colombia, which I've been to many times, but I was able to go to some areas in Colombia that I'd never visited before and were able to to pick up the birds that I had seen there. At the end of the trip, I was looking for some birds in an area that I have birded before, and I only got one of the two birds that I was looking for there because once you've been to a place, getting more birds is more difficult. Now, they're often found, of course, in places that are basically, well, inaccessible or yeah. off limits perhaps to due to politics. Yeah, that's very true. I, I would, there's one bird that lives in Iran that I would love to see, the Iranian ground jay. And unfortunately, with my background in the State Department, I'd be concerned that, uh, that I might be arrested on some trumped-up charges and then held as some sort of a hostage by the Iranian government. So 
not going to see that bird. But perhaps your diplomatic skills would come into play at such a crisis. Now, how <laughs> do you coax a bird out? Uh, good question. Uh, a lot of times it's just a question of, of being quiet and patient and letting the bird come to you. Uh, we make a special noise, us birders, uh, called spishing, which uh, tends to imitate or elicit a mobbing behavior in birds. So I go, sh -sh 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 -sh. and sometimes the birds will, will come and, and be interested in that noise. And otherwise, another way of doing it is to play a recording of a bird singing. And if there's another male in the territory where, you record, where you're playing the recording, the bird will come in and uh, investigate or even attack you, uh, thinking that you're a rival in this territory. Now, I know there's some dispute about how many bird species there are in the world. It depends on, the, well, on the way they're counted. Would you explain this? <clears throat> yeah, no, it's, 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 uh, it's a very good question. And interesting, it has an Australian link. Uh, in the old days, uh, people just counted birds and put them on their lists, and there was no accepted authority on, on a, a single list. Um, there was a, a guy named uh, Peters that did a list, gosh, 100 years ago, and it was a process that wasn't even finished until I think the early 1970s, late 1960s. The first one-volume list was published in the early 70s, and right now we have three or four competing lists of, of birds. The commonest used are one by eBird, which is also called the Clements List, and the other is the IOC list, and nobody really knows what IOC means. Um, those two lists are, are the main ones. They compete. They're about 200 different. My, my two lists, my list in eBird is about 190 birds fewer than my list in the IOC. So because I get more birds in the IOC, that's the list that I normally tell people about. There I... is, there's a harmonization process, I need to tell you about this, that uh, is being run by an Australian, a guy named Les Chrysalis, who uh, lives down near Melbourne. And they are trying to bring these the lists together so we have one final list. And hopefully that will be done by uh, the end of 2024. I'm hoping that he's listening to us now. Incidentally, I remember doing a program on birding years ago and it turns out that Australia has an extraordinary high percentage of songbirds. It does, and it also has an extraordinarily high percentage of endemic species, species that are found nowhere else in the world. Australia is one of the the real wonderful places to, uh, to go. I'm writing a, an article right now for a U.S. birding magazine and uh, I've put Australia as the third, number third place in the world to go for somebody who's looking to, to start bird watching. I've got to ask you a very personal question now. How did you get into birding? <laughs> it's all my older brother, Hank. He's eight years older than I. And when he was 10 years old and I was just two, he saw a bird called a vermilion flycatcher, which is a brilliant red and, and black bird found in the desert southwest and into South America. And he, he saw this bird and he went into a bookshop and he found a, a bird book that had a photograph of the vermilion flycatcher on the cover. And he bought the, the bird book and he still has it. And that bird was his spark bird and started him. And he was eight years older than I. And I adored him as a, as a child and, and followed him around. And he's been my mentor. We were just together birding some, what, 70 years later uh, in Colombia two weeks ago. And uh, we've had a wonderful uh, partnership over the years. But I, I owe it all to Hank. Is it you or Hank that uh, joined the Peace Corps? I was in the Peace Corps. And amazingly, your last uh, guest was talking about Ebola. I was in northeastern Congo at the time of the Ebola outbreak in 1976-78, and the first Ebola patients that were seen in a hospital were seen in my village, Nyankunde, which was a missionary village near the town of Ebola where the, uh, the disease first, first showed up. And two years later, you become a diplomat. Why did you choose that path? I chose the path so that I could live and work overseas and see birds. 
my uh, my training is in biology. I have no training as a diplomat, but fortunately, our diplomatic service uh, thrives with diversity. So I was welcomed in as a biologist. Do does the diplomatic service realize your secret motives? Yes, they did. They did. And they were very happy about it because I was willing to to serve in places like Papua New Guinea, the Solomon Islands, Afghanistan, uh, Colombia, which were not real, really desired places for, for normal diplomats. But I was delighted to go there because they're wonderful birds. Well, you've lived all over the world in the U.S., Central and uh, South America, Africa, the Middle East, Southeast Asia, and the South Pacific. And uh, heavens above, you've managed to study 13 languages. Yes, I... I about half of the languages were required by my job. So, for example, when I was uh, in in New Delhi, India, uh, doing visa interviews, I did most of my visa interviews in Hindi or Punjabi. So I needed to speak those languages. But some of the languages, for example, when I was living in Papua New Guinea, I didn't need to, to speak pidgin as a part of my job, but I did need to speak it as a part of my birding because when you're traveling outside of the city, you need to communicate, and uh, so I picked up Papuan uh, pigeon. The problem is that uh, most of the languages I've forgotten over time. I can't keep thirteen of them in my in my brain straight. So you, it was you're a right. Of, you're right of sure. expending or having to take over two dozen trips to get one bird. Yes, in. Uh, when I was living in, in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, there was a darn bird called a rusty nape pitta that lived in Fraser's Hill, which was at the time about a three-hour drive from our home. So I would leave very early in the morning on Saturday morning and go up and spend an hour or two looking for it and then drive back so that I could be back with my family in the afternoon on Saturday to, uh, to do family things. Peter, you've gone to quite extraordinary lengths to find birds. I guess... Um, Adventures in Peru were among the toughest. Yes, we we I've I've had adventures everywhere in in the island of Colombangra and the Solomons. I was lost for a couple of days and had to spend the night up in the up on the top of the mountain with uh, poisonous centipedes and and the the threat of of Japanese war World War Two uh, soldiers. Um, yes, and and and. In Peru, I, we've been on amazing adventures. In Colombia, we were shipwrecked uh, on the Peruvian-Colombian border one day. Uh, we were coming up at night, and a giant ship crushed our boat and sank us. And fortunately, the boat, our boat settled. The, the Amazon River has a deep channel, but is mostly uh, shallow, and we were able to get into the shallows. And by the time we sank, the very top of the boat was still above water. So we all clambered up on top of the boat and waited for rescue. So at one, in one moment, you're virtually drowning. and another, you thought you might die of altitude sickness. Oh, yes. That was my most recent trip to Peru. I was sleeping at around 15,000 feet, which, gosh, in meters, that's 40, 500 meters or something like that. And yes, I got altitude sickness for the first time in my life, and I didn't know where my driver was, so I had no way of getting down to a lower altitude. It was quite scary. A magazine called Outside uh, reports that uh, birding is very dangerous. Birders have been uh, marooned, kidnapped, and raped while in pursuit of birds. Absolutely. And one was eaten by a tiger in, in Nepal some years ago. Uh, yes, there's a very famous case of a, the, I think she, at the time she was the number one birder, a woman named Phoebe Snetzinger, uh, who was in Papua New Guinea with uh, a guide from, from Australia. Um, I believe it was David Bishop. And, uh, she was, uh, they were, they were attacked outside of Moresby and she was raped. How do birders prove that they've seen a bird, there must sometimes be scepticism. What's the procedure? Oh, <laughs> that's a very good question. It's, it's all on the honor system. It's really all on the honor system. People have reputations and 
you have a good reputation or a bad reputation, and people with bad reputations usually don't stay in the business very long. I thought that uh, you tried to take a photograph and uh, sort of register that at head office. (laughs) Well, there is no head office, but it is true. In the last uh, couple of decades, bird photography has really taken off, and especially with the development of uh, digital cameras. So if you see a rare bird these days, uh, if you don't have a photograph of it, uh, you're going to have a hard time convincing people that you've seen it. It, is it getting a bit easier these days with the new technology? Absolutely. Uh, I, one of the questions I was just answering in an interview I'm writing up is uh, whether we are in a golden age of international birding. And, and the, quest, the answer is absolutely yes. With the development of, of new tools, the Internet, and most importantly with the explosive growth of birding around the world, um, the amount of knowledge of birds, where they live, what they, where, where they, what they do, what they sound like, has all increased dramatically over the last uh, couple of decades. A final question and with a brief answer: What makes you so damn successful? <laughs> Passion. Well, that's a perfect answer, and I thank you for giving it. I've been talking to a bird extraordinaire, and that's uh, that's Peter Kanan. And he's the current world record holder for seeing more amounts of bird species. And he's on a mission to see 10,000. Congratulations and break a leg. Coming up. Thank you. Coming up, we'll uh, soon uh, be talking about the uh, great financial crashes of history from depression to the pandemic. And we'll ask why we never seem to learn from them. See you then. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.